Clear Channel's iHeartRadio. Welcome to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show. Better than before. An hour of beauty, health, fitness, and lifestyle advice from renowned columnist and author Jane Wilkins Michael and her guest, top experts in their fields. Join Jane's campaign to become better than before. Now, here she is, Jane Wilkins Michael. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show on iHeartRadio Talk. I'm Jane. I'm coming to you live from New York City. I want to thank you so much for being with us. Well, we have been on a hiatus for a few weeks, and what a show we have to welcome you back. But first, I want to welcome back my producer, Lori Houston, who I have missed. Hi, Lori. (laughs) Hi, Jane. Well, this show is not to be missed since we have a great guest to start us off. He is the Honorable Patrick Kennedy, and let me tell you a little bit about Patrick before we bring him on. He's a former member of the U.S. House of Representatives and the nation's leading political voice on mental illness, addiction, and other brain diseases. During his 16-year career representing Rhode Island in Congress, he fought a national battle to end medical and societal discrimination against these illnesses, highlighted by his lead sponsorship of the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act of 2008. Today, he continues to lead that fight, as did his father, the late Senator Ted Kennedy, devoting his career to advocacy for brain diseases, co-founding the Advocates for Opioid Recovery, and founding the Kennedy Forum, a coalition for the mentally ill and mental health policy. His triumphs and torments have always been public, and his personal battles with mental illness and addiction are documented in his best-selling book, A Common Struggle, which will soon be available in paperback. And not only does Patrick talk about his own journey with bipolar disorder and addiction, he offers a doable plan for the future of mental health to help millions and millions of others who suffer in silence. Welcome to the show, Patrick. It's an honor and a privilege to have you with us. I'm grateful. Thank you, Jane. I have to say that I very, very much admire you for being so open and forward about your own battles with drugs and alcohol. And, you know, Patrick, I think for many people, while they're open about talking, you know, about most diseases like cancer, MS, when it comes to mental illness and addiction, that's sort of the big elephant in the room, right? They feel there's a stigma attached to it, that being biologically dependent is somehow a weakness or a moral failing rather than a complex chronic disease. And you address that. Well, we have a cultural bias in this country that's been driven by the way we reimbursed uh, medical care, um, which only reinforces our prejudices. You know, that that, that people just uh, ought to will themselves into um, health, you know. And and if this is a brain illness, you know, the the real issue is it's it's a lack of moral, you know, character that, you know, is reflected in their illness, and it's not a, a medical issue. And so that's been really the uh, historical narrative for treating these illnesses, is they've been seen as, as moral issues, not medical issues. We've really never understood the brain and mind. Um, but, you know, all of that's changing quickly. And, and what's also changing is our healthcare system. And there's a, a profound recognition that by ignoring depression, anxiety, addiction, we're we're really ignoring the best opportunities to improve overall health for everybody, Uh, not just those who may have a primary diagnosis of a mental illness and addiction. 
And, and you also talk about the importance of of, of talking about uh, addiction and, and recovery. And and I know just you know briefly uh, talking about your your own life. I would imagine that that growing up at Kennedy brought with it its own set of stresses. You know, it seems as if you know the Kennedy Gestalt is you know you don't complain like like you know, my family, <laughs> we always complain, but you know, was, was there a bulletproof vest with your name on it in your family closet that kind of protected you from everything? Or were you very vulnerable about at a certain age? And maybe that led to well, uh, certain behaviors. The irony is that there were bulletproof vests in all of our closets. And, and that was actual reality, not just a, a metaphor for our lives because of the constant threats on my dad. You know, and you think about his brothers being murdered. Everyone says they were assassinated, but in our personal family, you know, people shot them, you know, and that impact of coming from a family that suffered such incredible trauma, uh, like a murder, um, you know, is is a profound impact on on the whole family. And and, um, so on top of that, you know, my... uh, you know, there is a biological uh, component to these illnesses as, and a genetic one compounded by an environmental one. And, mm-hmm. uh, so we just have to understand that in the same way we understand um, cancer and diabetes. You know, you can't eat too much sugar. You risk yourself for diabetes. You can't spend too much time in the sun or in uh, environments where, you know, might, uh, you know, encourage the predisposition for cancer to, to develop, you know, you just, you know, we treat the rest of the medical uh, system uh, towards treating the person kind of both uh, in a genetic and biological way, as well as an environmental way. But in mental health, we don't do that. It's, it's quite startling how different and, and we, I really look at it as a separate and unequal um, system uh, where, um, you know, the, the care is poor and uh, it's unequal to the rest of medical care. So um, that's the reason why we've been fo- focusing so much on this crisis in addiction in this country, because if we only treated addiction like we would other illnesses, I, I, I think we would have a dramatically different outcome than what we're getting from all of these overdoses, which now surpass car accidents as uh, yeah, a leading yeah. cause of death. And the reason is, is we wait too long to treat people. And, and with any other illness, you've got the early screening and the treat it proactively because you want to reduce the costs and you want to reduce the fatalities. But in mental addiction care, you really don't do that. And that's the crisis we're having today is we wait. We know someone's at high risk because they come from a family of those with addiction, you know, as I did, you know, mm-hmm. um, it goes back generations on my mother's side and, and on my dad's side, um, he clearly had challenges, um, with alcohol. And, and I really think that, um, the fact that we looked at it as kind of a, a personal challenge as opposed to a medical challenge for him, um, really undermined his ability to get the care he needed, as well as my mother, who was uh, suffering uh, in silence herself, yeah. um, even though she'd get periodic treatment in the way that they were given treatment, you know, 
30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, yeah. Frankly, it hasn't tr- changed a whole lot since then in terms of the model of care. So yeah. there's a lot to uh, to reform here. Yeah, but you know it's interesting because I, I I listened to a recent interview that you you had done actually with David Axelrod, and you said that um, you know speaking about your family that even the abnormal, which is debilitating addiction, alcoholism, mood disorder, it seems normal, you know, when you're in the in the middle of it, right? So, and if no one talks about it, you just think hmm, maybe that's the way it is. But again, it's it's important as you say to 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 talk about it um, about addiction and recovery. Well, it's important that our medical system uh, treat it as a medical issue. So it takes away this fear that it's somehow some reflection, again, uh, on the morality of the person. You know, that's what keeps it silent and hidden. People are afraid that people are going to, you know, criticize them. No one wants to live alienated from their friends, their family, from their community. No one wants to live that way. It's not in our human you know, makeup to, to be alienated. And yet that's what these diseases do. And our response to these diseases alienates us. So until our medical system treats these as the illnesses that they are, um, you're constantly going to get people feeling as though that's a moral failing. It's a personal um, problem, not a medical issue. So I really have been advocating for, you know, a checkup from the neck up for all, you know, clinician visits that we have, all doctor's visits, because you really can't treat person if you ignore their mental health um, and their vulnerability uh, for these diseases like addiction. So that's what we have to do. And something I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in asking you, because I think a lot of people, you know, a, a lot of friends, you know, you're so stressed at the end of the day, you just want to break a bottle of wine against the sink and drink from the jagged edges because using a corkscrew takes, you know, way too long. Uh, when should you notice that, you know, maybe you are having a problem and you should seek help? Because I think initially it probably has to come from you to seek this help. You know, when has it become like uh, something that, hey, wait a minute, you know, go get some help? Well, first of all, our culture absolutely promotes, you know, alcohol. We're now, and, and, and drugs, uh, you know, both legal and illicit. I mean, you're seeing now the legalization of marijuana sweep across the country, you know, as if the opiate crisis wasn't already a disaster for this country when, you know, Purdue Pharma was overproducing Oxycontin. And now we wonder how we got to this situation we're in today with the, um, you know, opiate epidemic, you know, how in the world is legalizing marijuana going to help where you're going to actually create this uh, for-profit industry that only is going to make money, just like the alcohol industry, um, based upon how much they can promote their product and actually, frankly, get people addicted. Because, you know, it's people like me who were alcoholics that were driving the profits for our uh, liquor industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 80% of the profits come from less than 20% of the consumers. They're the, they're the people who are the heaviest drinkers. You know, the people who quote unquote drink responsibly as the ads try to say, Oh, drink responsibly. They're not the ones that Budweiser's trying to reach. You know, it's, yeah. it's the people who want to drink it by the case that they're looking to get. So it, it's just window dressing. We have a culture that is promoting actively, you know, get lost, 
hide, you know, your feelings, uh, into- get intoxicated. That that that's we have to understand that before we can even begin to understand when is it, you know, in our own lives that we have to figure out whether we got a problem or not. Because it's hard to know when everyone, the normal around us is, you know, this is what people do in order to deal with stress in their lives. You know, frankly, we need to put together a whole process of how people can manage stress. How, what are the coping mechanisms uh, to deal with stress? What are things and have that kind of be ubiquitous in in schools so kids can learn to deal with stress in the workplace so employees know how to deal better with stress and in our healthcare system. Um, and in each of those areas, um, we would transform the educational outcomes um, of our school system. We transform the uh, productivity and workplace outcomes of people in the employment, and we transform the healthcare outcomes of people if they were able to better manage stress. Stress kills, and uh, it manifests itself uh, very negatively, especially if you have a predisposition for addiction and mental illness. Um, so there's no, you know, surprise that we have. Uh, our life expectancy as a as a nation is actually flattening out because in spite of the medical breakthroughs, there are so many suicides and there are yeah. so many overdoses that we're actually seeing that life expectancy, which was on the rise because of the medical breakthroughs we've seen in, in areas like cancer and the like, actually start to flatten out simply because of the mental health, untreated mental health and addiction crisis that we have in this country. Now, Patrick, what makes advocates for opioid recovery um, different from other efforts to combine the nation's opioid epidemic, which many, as we know, we just mentioned, don't don't necessarily work very well? <laughs> right. Well, advocates for opioid recovery is uh, Speaker Gingrich, myself. Uh, you know, uh, we have a really bipartisan approach to these because these issues are not. Um, you know, obviously, Democrat or Republican issues. Um, you know, we we are these issues affect every socioeconomic uh, and ethnic and gender uh, background you could find. Uh, Van Jones is one of our partners, great civil rights leader. Understands that you know this is uh, you know from. Uh, uh, the whole covers the whole spectrum of our population, and you know, there's various areas of uh, um, in discrimination that exist towards this, and we need to focus the light on those areas um, and seek kind of the best possible um, you know responses to dealing with these issues, um, and we're putting forth the best policies that are known out there to, to address opiate, um, the opiate crisis, and i um, very excited about what we've been able to accomplish and, and even more excited about what I think we can do um, going forward, because a lot of this is not new information. It's basically taking what we already know and, um, you know, getting it implemented. And I think, you know, between, you know, Van Jones, Speaker Gingrich and myself, we have the reach to uh, really 
effectuate this uh, in public policy circles such that we can get an adoption of best practices and what the evidence base tells us is the best uh, methodology for approaching this tragedy of untreated um, addiction. Right. And I, I noticed that Hillary Clinton released her mental health agenda earlier this week, uh, which is, uh, I think, all candidates um, should should address these issues uh, as we head toward the election yeah. in November. That's correct. And, and she's put forward the most comprehensive plan that anyone has ever put forward um, for any office <laughs> and certainly for the office of the presidency, it is so exciting to see such a comprehensive uh, plan put forward. This is not um, an issue that can just be, you know, a siloed issue. It has to be a comprehensive solution. Um, and she understands that it's reflected in her proposal. Yeah, and Patrick, I know you have to uh, leave us soon, but I do, I do want to just say that you know you're doing what was uh, is once unheard of, and uh, which is basically the impossible, and and you're boiling the ocean, as you said in one of your interviews. And I just love it, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> because of because of you, the medical community, the country, the world is rethinking its approach to addiction, and and your journey through all the darkness is is helping us all see the light, and and we thank you, and I thank you so much for that, and, and you know I must say you have four children, and I'm hoping that because um, I have kids too and you know their oh. addiction is um, um, neurological addiction to text texting isn't going to be the next epidemic yeah. too, <laughs> which is yeah. I, no, I, that, I, not, I fear not, we can laugh about it but there's a lot there that's backed up by science that tells us it's a, it's a real thing it, you know they, there are these um, chemical addictions alcohol opiates and the like and then there are process addictions which are, you know, inability to live without using, uh, checking our, you know, texts or our emails. Um, it's hoarding. It's uh, pornography. It's uh, it's eating. Um, you know, there there are uh, process addictions that really um, are also things we have to deal with. Um, but you know, the exciting thing is in this day and age is that we understand how to treat these uh, illnesses and and help people get well and um, you know I'm so excited by you know advocates for opiate recovery because what we're trying to do is just get the evidence base out there that there are solutions we do not have to consign ourselves to these terrible numbers of um, you know what we're seeing in the overdoses from, from opioid addiction, for example, and, and say, well, that's inevitable. It, it frankly isn't. We, we can mm-hmm. do things that will actually dramatically reduce the number of people who are overdosing if we simply take the science that's out there and employ it and say this is the best way for us to, uh, to treat people who have uh, an addiction to, to opiates, for example. And when we can do the same for other addictions, and frankly, um, it, it, the best approach of all is, is wrapping all of this together because people aren't, you know, um, dealing with just one issue when they're, you know, addicted to one uh, medication or other. They're dealing with a whole lot of other issues that also need to be brought into um, the picture. And, and that's all going to be possible um, if we adopt the right policies.
Yes. Do you have words, Patrick, that that you live by every day when you wake up? Do you do you have mantras or something that get you through the day that can help us all get through the day as well? <laughs> no. It, um, I I I call my wife my bride, and um, that helps me appreciate how she is like always uh, an inspiration in my life. I uh, hold my children, I kiss them and hold them tight. Like I, I and I just uh, wrestle them and um, do whatever I can to give them physical contact and show them my embrace. And I, I get on my knees every day and I thank God I've got a family and, um, and I've got, we've got our health. Um, and, and it is that that's that simple. Um, and the rest of it, I can, be very grateful to as well. But if, uh, you know, the health of my family and is not there, nothing else can be there. So, um, uh, and I obviously keep myself on track because I have the love and support of my family. So it's, uh, if I care about them, you know, I get better. Uh, and if I care about others who are also struggling as I've struggled, somehow I get better too. Um, so, you know, that's why I'm in this because uh, a lot of people helped me out and um, and we're all in this together. That's that's basically my mantra. Well, Patrick, thank you so very much for being with us. You you have indeed boiled the ocean. How how can we find out more about you and what you're doing? Um, www.thekennedyforum.org um, and um, Advocates for Opiate Recovery, um, which is, um, you know, focused specifically on the opiate crisis and uh, appreciate so much you're having me on. Oh, it was our it was our pleasure. Everyone stay with us. After the break, we're going to be talking to a renowned physician about another challenge faced by more than 80 million Americans. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As listeners of our iHeartRadio talk show know, Jane Wilkins Michael is one of the foremost experts on all things health, beauty, and fitness. Jane has just released her highly anticipated new book, Long Live You, a step-by-step plan to look and feel better than before. In it, she shares a collection of advice, tips, and personal antidotes, along with lifestyle suggestions from some of the world's top beauty, health, and fitness experts, many of whom have been interviewed on this show. Are you hoping to make positive health decisions, improve your emotional well-being, establish a support system, give something back to your community and the world? Jane's new book will help you look years younger and also live a longer, healthier, happier, and more beautiful life. You can order Long Live You, your step-by-step plan to look and feel better than before at your local bookstore or at Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com, where it's available for delivery or as an ebook. Or go to Jane's website, janewilkinsmichael.com. Now, Back to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show. Want to know where you can hear Jane Wilkins Michael Show better than before? Well, that's easy. You can tune into Jane via Clear Channel's iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, and at bmajor.org. Now, back to Jane Wilkins Michael and better than before. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show on iHeartRadio Talk. I'm Jane. 
Uh, coming to you live from New York City, I'm here with Lori as always, and now I'd like to welcome to the show a very renowned doctor, Dr. Scott Kahan. He is the director of the National Center for Weight and Wellness. He serves on the faculties of the John Hopkins Bloom, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, the George Washington University School of Medicine, and the George Washington University School of Public Health and Health Services. And he's a physician trained in both clinical medicine and public health. But Dr. Kahan is joining us today to talk about an, another challenge facing millions of Americans. Nearly 80 million Americans struggle with obesity, and he is here to tell us how to break that cycle and the six, uh, the cycle actually of the six stages of obesity, which often lead from weight loss to weight gain. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kahan. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. And if I read your whole bio, that, that's your segment. <laughs> very impressive, I have to tell you. You know, we've had a lot of doctors on this show. But just for the cliff notes, you uh, you teach, you've advised the White House, uh, several surgeons general, the U.S. House of Representatives, the FDA, and numerous national and local advocacy groups and public health initiatives pertaining to obesity and nutrition and chronic disease prevention. Uh, you're a columnist for the HuffPost. You've written 14 books. The list goes on and on. I hope I got the important stuff in. <laughs> Sometimes I'm able to spend some time with my newborn baby and my six-year-old as well. Ah, okay. That's the that goes in the top of the list, right? I think uh, so. But, you know, today, doctor, uh, let's focus on obesity. And um, our first guest was Patrick Kennedy, and we talked about um, addiction. And and like uh, drugs or alcohol, I know the layperson tends to look at obesity as sort of a lack of willpower. You know, just put down that cheeseburger and go for a run, and you'll be just fine. But, you know, that's easier said than done. Um, Are are obese people food addicts uh, who lose control when they eat because their brains react on a neurochemical level, either to their relationship with food? Uh, That means, you know, I guess habitually eating when something unpleasant happens. We've all been there. Or the substances in in food itself. Uh, Or is it it a deeper issue? Well, it's both and, and more issues beyond that. So one interesting area of research right now is around the question of food addiction and whether that's a, 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 an important cause of obesity. Uh, it's, it's an ongoing area of study, but we don't have definitive answers just yet. It's, it's a complex area, as you would imagine. Uh, but, but where we are essentially is that uh, the data so far suggests that some people do have similar addictive type um, uh, disorders around food and eating and obesity, similar to how others uh, have addictive uh, uh, disorders around drugs of abuse. Um, And uh, food addiction is probably a cause of obesity in a subset of people with obesity. In other words, not everyone who has obesity has a food addiction, but there there are almost certainly some people uh, who do fit that that mold uh, and who therefore should be treated uh, uh, appropri- appropriately as such. Um, but it's much more than that. And one of the things that makes obesity management so difficult is that it's not just a simple addiction or just a simple behavioral issue or just a simple psychology issue or the like. Uh, it can be a range of these, of these things and in many cases combinations of these things. So on the one hand, we, our genetics tend to make it easy for, for most people to gain weight. And the reason for that is evolutionarily for the vast, vast majority of human existence on this planet, 
there was relatively little food to go around and a whole lot of physical activity that needed to be done. And so our physiologies uh, became adapted uh, to dealing with very little uh, food intake uh, and deal with having to do lots of physical activity. When you then transpose that biology into the current environment where food is everywhere and in general the most uh, uh, the high, highest calorie and most unhealthy foods tend to be the cheapest foods, the most available foods, the largest portion foods, the most heavily marketed foods, and so forth, uh, we tend to eat more of them and we tend to gain weight uh, uh, relatively easily, most of us anyway. So, th so there's that. Combine that with, in some people, uh, propensity toward addiction. Combine that with, in some people, uh, some psychology issues that play into weight. Uh, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, and you can see how this is uh, a very complicated and complex issue. Uh, and you can see why so many of us uh, are affected by, by difficulty managing weight and, uh, and by uh, obesity. Now, how do you define obesity? I mean, how much overweight do you have to be before you're clinically obese? So I'll answer that in two ways. First of all, the official definition, the official clinical medical definition is at least a BMI, body mass index, of 30 or more. Now, BMI is a measure of weight adjusted for height. So in other words, uh, rather than define it as just a weight, um, that's problematic because if you're six feet tall, uh, you're obviously going to weigh more than someone who's five feet tall. So we need to adjust mm -hmm. for height. So a BMI of 30 is approximately 30 to 35 pounds overweight or more. Uh, and so, th so that's the clinical definition. Now, that is a screening definition. It's not perfect. There are some people uh, that have a lot of muscle, for example, and so they're going to be heavier even though they may uh, not have obesity uh, and vice versa. Some people uh, may have uh, 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 low levels of bone and muscle and they may have a very low BMI even though they have a very high level of body fat and technically uh, otherwise should fit the, the criteria for obesity. So what we do after we look at the basic screening measure of BMI is then we look at health problems associated with that obesity, things like hypertension, high blood pressure, or uh, elevated blood sugar or diabetes, or functional limitations, difficulty moving, difficulty breathing, difficulty sleeping, sleep apnea, for example. And when people have an elevated weight uh, combined with uh, health problems associated with that weight, uh, in, in my personal definition, that, that's how I, I would, would really focus on it. It gives you a little bit more um, uh, specificity than just using BMI alone. Yeah, but you know something it's it's really an epidemic in this in this country and they they say that this um the, the generation of of children this generation might be the first uh to who don't outlive their parents because of the fact that so many of them are overweight and sedentary. I mean they don't they don't move. They're at the computer, they're they're texting as we talked about in the first segment. They don't I mean it's almost a neurological dependency now that that they use the they don't get out and move anymore. <laughs> they used to. So 
it's it's yeah. it's frightening. It's frightening. And usually you see heavy parents and they have heavy children because I I guess, you know, uh, not only is it genetic, but I guess they feed the right they eat the wrong food. You know, you see them eating what the parents eat and and that you go, "Wow, that's going to be a heavy adult you know you kind of you see the progression of of you know a child gaining weight and and do you feel also exactly that right. certain food like junk food they're engineered for you to crave and eat compulsively like hello potato chips um do they more or less uh put uh come you know companies put addictive things salt sugar i mean that that i would think that's somewhat yeah. addictive yeah, you know? yeah. There's been quite a bit of there's been quite a bit of research into that, and uh, I'll tell you, I don't know about you, but but I certainly can't eat just one of the potato chips and, and the Doritos and such. Uh, and 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 most people have those similar problems. Again, gets back to what I was saying earlier. Uh, there's been lots of study into the addictiveness of foods and uh, and obesity in certain subsets of being an addictive disorder. And we don't have definitive answers on that, but there are certainly a lot of correlations uh, and a lot of preliminary data that suggests that it may be an issue. Um, there, you know, there's no question that, um, that, that food companies have put a lot of time and effort into uh, understanding what uh, what our tastes are and what smells, tastes, textures, presentations of foods and so forth uh, lead us to wanting to eat more and perhaps having difficulty with, with stopping. Uh, and uh, uh, and that, that's one of the factors that plays into uh, this, this significantly increased uh, uh, rates of obesity that, that, you mentioned, that you mentioned just now. It's not right. the only one. It's yeah. a complex thing with many contributors, uh, but, the, but that is almost certainly one of the important ones. And the thing is, doctor, we all have to eat. We don't have to drink. We don't have to do drugs, but we have to eat. So there comes a time where, you know, you can't avoid it and, and you have to sort of make it a, a lifestyle change. A lot of people think of going on a diet, which means, you know, you go on for a day and then at the end of the day you eat on Tuesday. You start Monday, of course, always start Monday. Tuesday you eat everything in the house and end up uh, gaining back the ounce you lost plus 10 pounds more. <laughs> so that, it sets up a vicious cycle, unfortunately. So, um, but speaking of, of cycles, let's talk about the six phases of obesity um, that that you um, you talk about. Um, let's go over them one by one, if we can, because I assume they apply to just uh, being overweight in in general. Even if you're not clinically obese, you people who are overweight. And the first one is uh, the defining moment. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So in 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 our society, there's not a natural place to go uh, when you have difficulty with obesity, when you're, you're gaining weight or when you've already developed obesity. People often don't know exactly what to do. They don't know where to go. They've never gotten training on this. There isn't a clear you know, doctor to go to or the like. So people tend to sit on the sidelines um, and, uh, and uh, until a defining moment comes along that triggers them to engage. So that could be something like uh, going to the doctor and, and the primary care doctor tells them that they've developed diabetes or that they may, they're, they're, they're very close to developing diabetes or getting high blood pressure, and that can be something that activates them. It could be seeing an unflattering photo of yourself 
um, uh, that activates you. Uh, it could be uh, having a health scare, et cetera, et cetera. It could be uh, a cousin, a, a friend, uh, a spouse uh, who went on some diet or did something, has lost a lot of weight and is feeling much better, uh, and, and that tends to activate you. But, but typically there is a tangible defining moment uh, that, uh, that activates you, leads to you feeling energized and motivated and gets you ready to do something uh, and get off the sidelines. Right. So at this stage, the, the person makes the decision to, to focus on the, on, the, on the weight loss. And then we get to consideration, the second phase. Yeah. So, so now you're feeling hopeful, you're feeling determined, uh, and you start looking into what your options are. And again, as I said, in, you know, in other areas of medicine, typically, you don't have to look very hard to figure out where to go. You know, if you have a problem with your tooth, you go to the dentist. If you have a problem with your back, you go to the orthopedist or the like. Um, it's not so simple in weight management. Uh, there, there traditionally has not been a clear medical specialist uh, that you would go to. Uh, and traditionally, uh, there's lots of noise that you have to navigate. You see all these commercials uh, that are telling you about these magic pills or these magic potions uh, or this, you know, magic program that's going to make you lose 30 pounds in 30 days. Uh, and so a lot, a lot of noise to navigate, uh, but hopefully uh, in that consideration phase, uh, the person is able to find a reasonable option uh, to reach out to and to engage with in order to move forward on uh, on their weight management path. Yeah, and I also believe it's a it's a family affair. I think that you you need to be supported because if you're eating a a, a piece of melon and they're digging into lasagna with double cheese and chocolate cake, I think it's a little harder to keep your resolve to not eat that if everyone is eating it. So I always feel it's very important to get your family on board with you when you when you make this yeah, decision and your friends too, you know, and your friends also. Yeah. Now, um, three, and, and I like three, is uh, you feel momentum, which is you feel confident, you feel excited, and, and you're very proud of, of, of your weight loss and everyone and all the positive feedback. But then you go into four, which is a, a plateau, and then all of a sudden it's, um, you, you don't feel so confident, and, and you're thinking, hmm, nothing, you know, what, what happens in the plateau? You're not losing any more weight, and then you're just deciding, what the heck, I'm not going to do this anymore? Yeah, so, so three and four, momentum and plateau are things that I think all of us have felt, even even outside of, of weight management, any type of behavior change goal, or there are times where we're feeling like, like we can't do any wrong, we're flying along, it doesn't even feel like it's all that hard, uh, we have momentum and it feels great, we all know what that feels like, um, but unfortunately, we all also know what plateaus feel like, uh, we, you know, just yesterday, just last week, we had the momentum, everything was going well. Uh, because of that, we had a lot of energy to keep putting into it. And now all of a sudden, it's getting harder. Now all of a sudden, you've slipped a couple times off track, and it feels harder to get back on track. Now all of a sudden, you step on the scale in the morning, and instead of it, seeing, instead of it going down consistently day by day and in pretty big chunks week by week, now it's not moving so much or perhaps not moving at all. Uh, and now all of a sudden, we don't have as much energy to keep doing the hard things that we've been doing uh, to make the weight go down. Now, I would argue that plateaus are inevitable. I mean, it's inevitable when you're losing weight that there are going to be times that the scale 
doesn't move. There are going to be times that you're still working really hard, but the scale isn't going down uh, in, in what feels like a commensurate way with how hard you're working. And that's all part of the path. I think what's particularly important with plateau phases is on the one hand that you have you've built a big picture understanding of what's going on to help you um, uh, negotiate that plateau, and two that uh, that you have a support system in place. As you said, uh, family friends uh, can be very helpful, uh, and ideally, if you have access to it, a professional uh, that uh, that can help you navigate these times is very valuable. It could be an obesity medicine doctor like myself. It could be a dietitian. It could be a behavioral psychologist. It could be a a uh, a group support system like uh, like a Weight Watchers group or a YMCA weight management group or something like that. All all of those can be very helpful, especially during these times where you know where, where we don't have as much energy and we feel like everything keeps getting in our way. Yeah, and then and then we need that. We need someone to say you're you're okay. I think we're we're looking for someone to say you're okay. It happens, you know. It's uh, we feel your pain. Don't worry about it. You're you're gonna you're gonna be fine. Just continue with the uh, with with how you're, you're you're doing. You're doing very well. You need a little positive support, I think. So if we could just briefly go over yeah. the five and six, because I really want to know your advice uh, for for losing weight. Your best advice. So five is 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 collapse, which is you know you feel tired, you don't want to continue it anymore, and you almost feel like a relief that oh gosh, I don't have to worry about. Dieting anymore? Give me that nice piece of chocolate cake that I have <laughs> that I put in the back of the refrigerator that has been calling to me since I started this thing. And then um, at six is uh, uh, fatigue that you feel exhausted and and uh, eventually you you regain the weight that was lost and and more. So given those, which are a little bit more negative, how do you overcome this and then um, become positive again about your about your journey to lose weight. Yeah. So I, I think what is particularly important about that collapse and fatigue steps is that addressing them starts much earlier in the phases. Um, if, if you have a support team in place, a support uh, a professional in place, if you have been learning about the science of obesity management uh, and the strategies that can be helpful and anticipate the, the, uh, the, the, the roadblocks that come up and the, the, the bumps in the road that get in our way that lead to plateaus and so forth, then it's much more likely that instead of um, collapsing and giving up, uh, when it gets very frustrating, it's much more likely that you'll have an approach where you accept that there are going to be some ups and downs, and you may fall down on your butt a little bit, uh, but you take a deep breath, you get yourself back up, you reach out to your support team for, for assistance, uh, and, uh, and move forward from there. But that all has to start earlier. Um, unfortunately, most people get into that plateau phase. They start getting very frustrated. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to turn. Uh, they, they're, they're feeling uh, hopeless. And by that point, uh, if nothing's in place at that point, the likelihood is that they'll, 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 it'll lead to the last step, which is fatigue, where they go back on the sidelines. They give up. They feel like there, there's no point in continuing because they don't know what else to possibly do. They've worked so hard, and it feels like all of their, their gains have been given up now. And so they go back on the sidelines until they enter the cycle again down the line, until they get reactivated 
six months down the line, a year, two years, or however much down the line by something else. Once their energy is uh, is uh, regenerated, once they're not feeling as hopeless anymore, and once something else that's energizing comes along uh, to reactivate them. Right. So, Doctor, in our final uh, minutes, uh, can you just tell us uh, what is your best piece of advice for breaking the cycle and, and continuing, on, as I said, on your path to, to your, your goal, which is to lose however much weight you, you want? Well, I'd like to give a couple pieces of advice. First off, sure. I think, I think in, in most areas of behavior change, awareness is particularly important. So just simply seeing on paper, seeing in front of you, the, the, the fact that virtually everyone that tries to manage weight goes through these phases, can, this, the awareness of that can be very empowering. So we should expect that we're going to go through different uh, uh, pieces of that cycle, even though we can adjust them by, by understanding that, that it's very common. Secondly, uh, very important to have a support system in place, as both you and I have talked about uh, during, during this uh, interview. Um, it, it can be as, as simple as uh, a, a, a group of friends or a spouse or, or a family member, although if possible, especially if you've had uh, real significant obesity and have tried many times to lose weight, it's ideal to have a, a, a professional involved, either a doctor or a psychologist or a dietitian or the like. And lastly, uh, there are good treatment options beyond just going on a diet and exercising. Those are going to be important regardless, but we do have good treatment options beyond that. Counseling is a good treatment option. FDA-approved medications can be a good treatment option. In some cases, surgery can be a good treatment option, and there are others beyond that. Uh, But if we can put all these things together, uh, there is a very good chance that we can make real progress and lasting progress. There is hope, which is really, really important. So thank you so much, Doctor. Where can we find you and, and, and your advice? You can, you can Google me by my name, Scott Kahan, or you can look at my, uh, my clinic website, which is the Center for Weight and Wellness in Washington, D.C. And then if we read your 14 books, we're not going to have time to eat. So that's probably the best piece of advice of all, right? <laughs> and, and your columns, that's it, right? So good luck with your baby. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, that's our show, everyone. Thank you, Patrick Kennedy. And thank you so much, Dr. Kahan. And, and Lori, thank you as always. And thank you all for listening. This is Jane Wilkins-Michael. I will see you next week. Until then, be wise, be well, be better than before. Have a question for Jane and want to be on the next Better Than Before show? Drop us a line via instant feedback at bmajor.org. The Jane Wilkins Michael Show is brought to you by Express Scripts and is produced by Major Radio for Clear Channel's iHeartRadio and bmajor.org.